We are coming to the, the final message, the final sermon of this series in Second Peter, in concluding with these parting words of Peter for this church. Parting words, final words. How, how will Peter leave this church? What, what impression does he want to leave with them? What, what sort of commands or encouragements does he want to give to them as he, as he pulls this letter together, as he summarizes this truth, and as he calls them to a life that is stable and fixed and fruitful? What will he say? It got me thinking about uh, some other parting words. Parting words of men throughout the ages who have sought to establish the, the attention that is due to Jesus Christ. Polycarp, who lived in A.D. 69 to A.D. 155 and was a disciple of the Apostle John in standing in the Colosseum and, and uh, commanded to uh, defect and denounce Jesus Christ says this as his final words. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. On his farewell, he says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ's sufferings. Ignatius of August, or Antioch, who was also a disciple of John, says this, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross Flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. John Wycliffe, who was one of the pre-reformers living in the 1300s, said this, Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. And finally, John Huss, who was a contemporary of John Wycliffe says while he was being burned at the stake Lord Jesus it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies have you considered what your parting words might be to those you love have you considered what legacy you would like to give to those who come after you what sort of things you would desire them to remember about your life? Those parting words, as it were, the commendation, the encouragement, the call to a life. What kind of life would you call them to follow? Well, Peter is speaking his final words, and this entire letter, for that matter, has been oriented around that theme. As we saw in chapter 1 of this letter, beginning in verse 12. He says, I will always remind you of these things. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon be put aside. Verse 15, and I will make every effort 
to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter recognized the significance of the truths that we have covered in this little letter. Truths of calling this church to faith. Truths of calling this church to embrace the life of godliness that God had given to them through the power, the living power that came and resided within them through the Holy Spirit. Calling them to maturity. Calling them to the kind of, of spiritual uh, assuredness and steadfastness in the Christian life. And he will wrap up this letter summarizing all of those truths and bringing them to us in a series of four imperatives. Four commands that we'll find throughout these next four verses from chapter 3, verse 14 to verse 18. Four imperatives that will drive the Christian life and will help you to remain true and steady and stable and growing in the life which God has given to you. The first is found in verse 14. It is, be diligent. Be diligent. Notice that with me. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. Peter has word, used this word already in chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, never fall. Peter wants this church to understand there is an eagerness in waiting. There is an urgency in waiting. There's a diligence. There's an activity in our waiting. It requires this kind of of diligent, faithful, consistent activity. So he's summarizing for them, beginning with this word to their, therefore that we see at the beginning of this section. Peter is drawing it to a close, wrapping up his final thoughts of this letter, summarizing it for them in these four commands. I appreciate the affection, the interest, the concern that Peter has for this church. There are five occasions in just chapter 3 where Peter refers to them as beloved. Dear brothers. He does that only in chapter 3. He only refers to this church in this way in this final closing chapter. And we find a succession of three instances of this in these final verses. Beloved, this term of endearment you are my loved ones. There is urgency. There is affection. There is care that he wants to communicate to these dear brothers in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In verse 8 of chapter 3, But do not overlook this fact, beloved. In chapter 3, 14, that we just read, Therefore, beloved, in verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. In verse 17, you therefore beloved. Can you hear and sense the care, compassion, and concern of Peter for this dear flock? These people who he has expressed his heart to. He describes them as those who are waiting. 
He says in verse 12 and 13, and now in verse 14, calls attention to their waiting. In verse 12, he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In verse 13, waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. And now, waiting for these, be diligent. To wait is to expect, to anticipate. There is this eagerness an urgency, and activity in their waiting. What are they to do? There are two things that Peter encourages them or calls them to in their waiting. First, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. He says that be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Be holy. Be godly. Pursue the right kind of virtue emulate the life of God as he says in chapter 3 verse 11 since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness in godliness be found in him without spot or blemish now those of you who are theologians and have been at Maranatha for any length of time, you will understand and recognize that there is an inherent, there is a holiness that we have received from God. We call it imputed righteousness. This righteousness of Christ, he in living the perfect life that God required, then applies that righteousness to our account and fills it out for us. There is nothing left for us to do in terms of earning favor with God because Jesus did it all. His righteousness is enough. There is nothing more for us to add. And yet, Peter wants this church to recognize that while we enjoy the benefits of the righteousness of God, there is also a righteousness now that we are required to show. The righteousness that comes because of the work of God in our life the righteousness that is then activated because of what God has purchased for us in terms of a new life. It opens the door for us now not to be slaves of sin, but to be slaves of righteousness. Now, because of Christ Jesus, we have a decision to make. Now, because of faith in Christ, we are able to live the life that he's called us to live. You will not be like the false teachers, those counterfeits that we saw in chapter 2, verse 13. Notice, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. Don't be like them. Be without spot. Be without blemish. Rather, you will look like Christ. The picture of Christ that it was lifted up in Peter's first letter in chapter 1, verse 18. The precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And those who trust in the work of Christ will be those who are growing in maturity because Christ is working in their life to sanctify them. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, the work of Christ to free us of the blemishes and the spots. Notice that he might sanctify her, speaking of Christ for his church, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word of God so that he might present her, the church, to himself in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ does this for his bride. Christ does this for his own. He does this for his church. Those who are in Christ, in recognizing the beauty of the righteousness of Christ, as we saw in the early parts of this letter, the virtue of Christ drew us to him and now becomes part of the life that we live. In chapter 1, verse 5, as we add to our faith virtue, this virtue which is the beauty, the, the, the splendor of God that we saw first in Christ and now is being emulated in us. They have an indwelling power, the power of the Holy Spirit that allows this to happen. It doesn't happen otherwise. It only happens through the work of the power of God in our life. It's like one of the expressions or the marks of true spirituality. As John will say in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, when he says, No one who, who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now all of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, will understand and know that sin is a regular part of our life, but it is not something that we're happy with. It's not something that we make a practice of. It's not something that we're comfortable doing because the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin and lead us to righteousness. His seed remains in us and because we're born of him, we do the things that God has called us to do. His righteousness then not only is imputed on us but carries us into a righteous, pure, spotless kind of life, at least moving in that direction, longing for that kind of life. Think about a bride. Think about a bride who is walking down the aisle and the church is this bride of Christ, this bride that Jesus is seeking to sanctify and cleanse with the washing of the water by the word. But imagine this bride, she, she comes in the back door and she's this wedding march song is playing everyone stands and turns around and faces the back and notices some very alarming things about this bride first she's wearing baggy sweatpants she's wearing a hoodie she's wiping the sleep out of her eyes you can tell that she's got some bedhead and uh, there's this strong fragrance that's coming from her that would say she hasn't taken a shower for a little while. The thing that you would think about that bride wouldn't necessarily be good. You would say, she's not prepared. She's not made herself ready. And the dishonor that she is bringing to herself and the dishonor that she's bringing to her groom will express that she doesn't really care much about him and she doesn't care much about this uh, significant event. Brothers and sisters, we are the bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God has, through his son Jesus Christ, he seeks 
to sanctify and cleanse his church. And those who belong to him, who are anticipating that day, that wedding day when Jesus will come, will purify themselves as he is pure. Will seek to pursue a life of holiness and godliness, free of spot, recognizing that there are failings in this life, but also knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who will forgive our sins and continue to restore us into relationship with him if we ask for forgiveness, if we ask for his cleansing. He delights in making us fit and ready. Pursue godliness. He moves on and says, pursue peace. Be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is a picture of harmony or tranquility. This picture of settled confidence. This picture of someone whose heart and mind are secure, not moving and not altered, not concerned about the circumstances around them, but are so settled in their confidence in God. This peace that Peter is talking about here designates the the life of somebody who is right with God. They're entering into his presence with joy. And as John will say in 1 John 2, 28, they don't have to be um, alarmed. They can be confident and not ashamed before him in his coming. They're at peace. In some ways, I think peace may be the most visible way and most obvious way for us to see and recognize true spirituality in ourselves. You know, we can dress up the outside. We can check the right boxes. And those of you who've been at church long enough know what people expect. You know how to come to church, how to say the right things, how to do the right things, how to treat your wife and children the right way, how to, how to do the various ministries in the church. We, we know how to dress ourselves up, but when it comes to peace, peace is a little bit harder to, to, uh, to, to be superficial about. At least it is for me. When things are going poorly in my life, when things aren't going my way, when I get bad news, when things break down, when I hear uh, about people who are coming after me for various reasons, or when there's strain in a relationship, or whatever manner of, of difficulties I might experience, it's really hard for me to cover up and to show a facade of peace. Anyone else struggle with that? (laughs) Instead, I find myself getting frustrated. I find myself getting angry and anxious. I find myself complaining, uh, blaming, becoming bitter, and often striving to fix whatever problems there might be because I don't want that difficulty to exist any longer. But those who are indwelt by the Spirit will allow the fruit of the Spirit to lead them to peace. Settled confidence. As we find in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Peace. It's the kind of peace that anchors your heart when things aren't going your way. 
There is a confidence in the sovereignty of God that he is over all. There is a posture in your heart as there was with Joseph who when he said, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And what Job says about, um, I had it and now it's gone. How does it go? Uh, I'll get it eventually. Guess I won't. (laughs) Job learned how to celebrate the work of God in his life when things weren't going his way. Job remembered that God was over all. Job was able to celebrate and worship God when life was as bad as could be. When God took his family, when God took his health, when God took his property, when God took his sheep and everything that he had was evaporated and taken away and Job was still able to worship God. That's what settled confidence does. That's what peace in your heart will do as you trust that God is over all. Peace that will be a telltale sign of the work of the Spirit in your life and often a better indication of where you are spiritually than your ability to go through the motions. Be those who are diligent. Peter wants them to recognize that in the waiting, there is a working. There is a working. There is an activity in the waiting. Pursue holiness. Pursue godliness. Pursue peace. Then we find in verse 15 and 16, the second command. The second command, it says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the faithfulness or the patience of our Lord as salvation. And I have entitled this, Be Thankful. Be Thankful. Where do I get that? Well, because there was every reason that this church had to complain. As we'll look at in just a moment, and as you remember uh, Peter's letter to this church in his first letter, you will remember how bad things were. And, and that by God's delay in coming meant that things were really bad for this church. But it was because of the patience of God, because of the delay of God, that they were able to enjoy repentance. They were able to enjoy salvation. They can celebrate their relationship with God because of delay. Count the patience of God as salvation because through his patience, you were saved. And because of his patience, others will also be able to enjoy the benefits of salvation. Be thankful. This word to count is the word to consider to be of an opinion, to think, to regard. This active appreciation, this active enjoyment, this active worship of counting and considering that even though things are really hard for me right now, it is through the delay of God that I have been able to come into salvation and it is by the delay of God that others will be able to enjoy salvation as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience has led to repentance for you. And God's patience will lead to repentance for others. Consider this delay, this delay of Christ's return. However difficult your circumstances are, God is using this delay to draw people to himself. Don't resist that delay. Don't be troubled. Don't be discouraged. Don't be deceived. I'm reminded of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says this. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Believer, you who have asked for forgiveness and have enjoyed the benefit of forgiveness from God, we should be the happiest people on the planet. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We are blessed. We should be happy. We should celebrate the wonder of God's kindness and mercy and grace upon us that even in his delay, he allows us to enjoy the continuing benefits of forgiveness that come through grace of him and the patience of God to wait for our repentance to come to a place of asking for forgiveness. We as believers should be the most happy of any people on the planet. And so that happiness, another psalm, Psalm 27, should lead us to joy. And now he says, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody in my heart to the Lord. As the enemies are surrounding, as pressures are mounting, as troubles are coming, uh, David's posture is a posture of worship and celebration, knowing that God will help him through his times of trouble. And he will give sacrifices of joy. Sacrifices of joy. Peter says in his first letter, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I was listening to a message several weeks ago, and I was reminded of the truth that in the opportunity or in the moment of our greatest temptation, in our in the moment of our greatest trial. There is an opportunity for greatest worship. Here's how it works. When things are hard, when trials mount, there is a golden opportunity for us to lay down that trial at the feet of Jesus as a sacrifice and an offering back to him that says, I believe you, I trust you. So when things are really hard, 
when life is really dark, when you're feeling lots of pressure and lots of pain and people are coming against you, whatever that trial might be, it is an opportunity for you to worship as you present that pain back to God, as you present that situation back to God and you say, God, I trust you. I give this back to you. This is my sacrifice of faith back to you that says, I believe that you are good. And this is my celebration of worship back to you. I'm singing, um, these are my sacrifices of joy back to you for uh, what you will accomplish through this pain. God wants to use our pain to, to lead us to worship. And that can only happen if we choose to be thankful. We come to our next command that is found in, verses, in verse 17. He says, You therefore, beloved, again this term of endearment, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. This imperative, take care, which is be alert, be on guard. As he said in his first letter, be sober, be watchful, be vigilant, be alert. Actively guard. He says in, in his first letter in, in, in chapter five, verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This word that we see in this uh, take care um, that you are not carried away, the, the you there is emphatic. It's something that you have to do for yourself. It's something that in putting yourself in a position of safety and the community of God's people, you in establishing yourself on the, the foundation of the word of God, God uses the tools that he's given to you to help create a sense of stability by being alert. He uses the word knowing, the word knowing. Knowing that this is coming, I'm preparing you for this. It's the word uh, to know ahead of time. And Jesus does the same thing for his apostles in John chapter 16. He wants them to be ready for the hard things that are coming. So he tells them in John 16, 1 and 4, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Be on guard. Recognize the challenges that are coming to you. Hard times are coming. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue in, as it relates to the disciples. They're, they're going to kill you. They're going to think that they're doing a work for me. They're going to think that they're doing what is right. Don't be surprised. Don't be confused. Don't be unsettled. Don't be shaken. Peter says, don't be carried away. This word to carry is to lead astray. They're, they're walking away from God and they want to take you along with them. Be like those who are growing in a measure of faith and maturity and fullness and stability that Paul will talk about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, when he says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro 
by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the human cunning, the human cunning and craftiness in deceitful scheming. Don't be like a wave that's tossed around. You can be fixed. You can be secure only as you anchor your heart in the Word of God. Anchor your heart in the stability, the sure foundation that he will talk about, Peter talks about in in chapter 1, verse 19. We have a, a prophetic word that is more fully confirmed. That steady word of God that was given to us through the Holy Spirit will help to anchor you and keep you from being carried away It will also help uh, you to remain stable. This stability that he talks about. This place of safety and security. Don't be like the unsteady souls that we see in chapter 2, verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. And in chapter 2, verse 18, speaking, these false teachers speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping Don't be like them. Be wise. Be firm. Be fixed. Be steadfast. Be like the the people that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Allow the word of God to anchor your heart in the things that will that will uh, uh, stabilize your spiritual life. It will keep you from being carried away. It will keep you from being unstable in the Christian walk. You do this now by being mature. We find that as the, the fourth and final command in this section, in verse 18. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in grace. Be mature. And you're mature in two ways. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge. This word to grow is also an imperative. This command that he gives to this church. It is to increase or to grow in degree. To exceed It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the the fruitful seed that grows in the healthy ground. It's growing and increasing and yields 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. It's the same word that's describing this growing church in Acts chapter 6. The word of God continued to increase. This is the same word. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. The kind of growing and flourishing of life that happens, again, as we're growing in grace. The power of God and the word of God that nurtures this kind of growth. So what does it mean to grow in grace? What is Peter getting at? How, how, does, how does one grow in grace? How can he nurture this or cultivate this kind of life, this kind of fruitful life? I think it happens a number of different ways. This growing in grace, I believe uh, Paul alludes to in his prayer for the church in Ephesians chapter three, 
where he talks about knowing the, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, knowing the width and length and depth and height of that love of God, that the grace of God, the mercy of God, and, and learning the love of Christ which helps us not only to love God more, but helps us to love others more. Living and abiding in this grace of God, the same grace that Paul appeals to in Romans chapter 12, verse one. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies or the grace of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. It's the, it's the, the, the reality of the grace of God in knowing that God is giving you a life that you don't deserve helps you not only to appreciate him more, but helps you to overlook the offenses of others and gives you a heart of those who would desire even your enemies to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to love your enemies, to pray for those who despitefully use and persecute you. How does that happen? It only happens as you're growing in grace, as you recognize that you don't deserve anything that you have in the Christian life and you seek to extend that to others who also don't deserve it. But I think that growing in grace also involves another component. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, says this, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, he says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. There are grace gifts. There is the giving of the Holy Spirit, special gifts that he's given to us so that we can express that same grace and the presence and power of God to others. They can see the grace of God show up in us as we put to work the gifts of grace that he's given to us. So growing in grace means growing and thriving in ministry. It's demonstrating the presence of God in your life, the gifts that he's given to you as an expression then, a means by which you can encourage and serve and help those who are in the body of Christ. So we grow in grace as we come to enjoy the grace of God to us, and we grow in grace as we express that grace to others through spiritual gifts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to close this, this portion of our time together, in speaking about grace, says this, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. We don't want to preach a grace that is empty of repentance. We don't want to preach a grace that is empty of the cross and empty of pain and that calls us to a life of obedience, a life of purity, a life of emulating the life of Christ in righteousness within us. We want to preach a grace, a grace that is costly. The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot 
We want the grace of God that has been poured out to us to be shown to the world around us as we demonstrate a loyalty for Jesus and a commitment to his word, the knowledge of God that comes through the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for these closing words, these parting words of the Apostle Peter. And God, we see in them a call to our own lives, a call to diligence, a call to thankfulness, a call to alertness, a call to maturity. God, I thank you that those things are possible because of what we're going to do next. As we remember your son Jesus, who gave himself for us so that we could enjoy relationship with God and a life with God through Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we move into our time of communion, a time of remembrance, I pray that you would encourage our hearts as we think about you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, take your your bread and your cup. If you haven't done this before, there's a little film on top that uh, will help you get to the, the bread itself. Those of you who've been at Maranatha for any length of time will, will know that there's nothing about this ordinance that is salvific. There's nothing about our time in the next few minutes that, that ushers us into salvation. There, there's nothing about this that leads us to any kind of merit or favor with God. It, it really is just simply a time of remembrance, time of calling attention to the grace of God, remembering that every one of us in this room stand on level ground before the cross. We all stand as those who are in desperate need of God's forgiveness and grace. And even in this moment, if there are those in this room who have never come to a place of trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the time is now. Admit your sin. Recognize that your sin has separated you from God. But also know that there is a Savior who is holy, a Savior who came and walked this earth clothed himself in humanity while remaining fully God. He lived the life that you and I could never live. Perfect, holy, pure. And then he died the death that you and I deserved. The death on the cross, brutal, horrendous sacrifice that he gave so he could make a way. You can make a, a way of peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace that can settle your heart. Peace that can settle all of our hearts as we understand and recognize the, the power and sovereignty of God of accomplishing it all and working all things for good to those who love Him. And so as we hold the bread in our hands, we remember... Remember the, the grace of Jesus Christ in coming to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus, it says, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread 
When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus blessed the bread, thanked the bread, or thanked God for the bread. He himself would be the one who would sacrifice himself, lay his life down, and yet he is thankful. He's thankful because he knows that it's only through the cross that he can purchase redemption for the world. The grace of Jesus. Let's remember the grace of Christ as we take the bread together. And the cup represents the blood of Christ. This grape juice is just a a symbol of that blood, the life's blood given for us, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is through the life that was shed for us, the, the life's blood that was spent for us, that we can have newness of life. We can have the righteous life that God promises the, the newness of life because of the, the work of Christ on our behalf. And we can anticipate not just a new life today, but especially a new life with Christ in heaven one day. So Jesus, in this upper room, is celebrating the finished work, his body, his blood, and what that purchases in terms of making him one with these disciples in some incomprehensible way. Jesus says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the work of Christ in offering us life as we drink together. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice your broken body, your shed blood. Thank you for what that makes available to us. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray even in these moments, if there's anyone here in this audience or anyone watching on the live stream, that you would convict them by your Holy Spirit and draw them into life with God. So that regardless of how hard troubles might be today that they can celebrate the delay that we've been talking about the delay and the patience of God that leads to repentance may the patience of God be salvation for them today and Lord I pray that you would help us as those who have enjoyed the benefits of your patience and your delay and have experienced uh, forgiveness and repentance that we would be that much more eager that much more active in our waiting to lead and to tell others about the work of Christ and to encourage them to enjoy the benefits of forgiveness and repentance as well. God, thank you for our time in this study. May you be pleased with our lives. And as as Peter says here at the close, 
To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you as you go.